Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 182, Churchill and Hitler, Race for Norway. Last time, British Commodore Harwood, commander of Force G, stationed in the South Atlantic, had been able to force the destruction of the pocket battleship Graf Spee by its own captain's hand. But there still remained the tanker Altmark that had accompanied the pocket battleship which still held some 299 Commonwealth merchant seamen prisoners. Its captain, Heinrich Dow, knew he had to get back to Germany, so stayed well off the normal shipping lanes as he made his way north. By mid-February, he was off the coast of Norway's southern shores, in between the Norwegian mainland and a string of offshore islands called the Inner Leeds, His plan was to ready his vessel for a dash across the North Sea to Germany. But at midday on April 16, 1940, Captain Dow was told that two planes had just flown over the ship. They were British coastal Hudson bombers. Overhead, pilot officer C.W. McNeil whooped aloud when he read the ship's name. Right away, a signal was sent to a squadron of a light cruiser and several destroyers, the closest British ships to the newly discovered German vessel, all under the command of Captain Philip Vian. Soon after, two of Vian's destroyers were ordered to board the Altmark. However, as the tanker was in neutral waters, Captain Dow refused to heave to. As for the luckless Norwegians, stuck in the middle of this potentially explosive issue, They had no choice but to place two of their torpedo boats in between the contesting vessels. Though the Norwegians had 90% of their tankers used by the British, they feared Hitler's reaction should they stand by and allow the British to violate their territory. Still, the formalities had to be observed. Local representatives of Norway asked the Altmart's captain, did it have British prisoners on board? The answer was negative. Then they asked, was the tanker armed? Again, the answer was no. And though both were lies, that's all the Norwegians had to go on. The local representative ordered the British ships out of Norwegian waters, which they did. Captain Dow now assumed he and his would be protected from the British. Yet an update of all this went to the first sea lord, Churchill. He decided to take charge of the matter. Telling Vian to make an offer to escort the Altmark back to Bergen, located along Norway's southwestern coast, for a proper inspection, he then made it clear if this proposal was not accepted by the Norwegians, again stuck in the middle, then he, Vian, was to directly board the Altmark and rescue the prisoners. Vian understood and boarded one of his destroyers, the Cossack, to enter the fjord. The Norwegians heard him out, but as their fear of Hitler had not changed, they denied the request. 
Vian took the Cossack alongside the Altmark, who tried, at the last second, to ram the destroyer. Some thirty officers and men left the destroyer and boarded the tanker. The German crew tried to stop them, and for their pains, several of the tanker's crew were killed or wounded. Now that the British sailors controlled the enemy vessel, a hatch was forced open. An officer yelled, Any British down there? Yes, we're all British, said a voice. Come on up then, came the reply. Come on up then. The Navy's here. Overall, besides to the 299 rescued sailors, the Altmark fiasco did not mean much to the British besides a propaganda topic, or to the Germans to a lesser degree. But what it did do was bring Norway up on the international stage, which it could have very gladly done without. With the German surface vessels out of the Atlantic, mostly, and their subs having a hard time with the convoy system now in place, Churchill was seeking something for the Royal Navy to do besides react to Nazi Germany. And now that his attention was on Norway, the two ideas seem to have come together. Around the same time, bringing back an idea from the Great War, Churchill wanted to put together a fleet of three battleships, a carrier supported by cruisers, destroyers, and subs, and head into the Baltic, just as soon as the ice became passable. Operation Catherine, as it was to be called, would see a second front opened up on the coast of northern Germany. This move, hoped by those in London and Paris, would not only cut off the Swedish iron ore coming to Germany, vital to its war industry, but might also induce the still-neutral countries of Scandinavia to come to the Allied side. Going even further with their hopes, might not Soviet Russia see this as the beginning of the end of Nazi Germany, and so switch to the Allied cause, or at least stay neutral of any fighting so close to their border. However, staying more in line with reality, certainly in mid-1940, Operation Catherine would provide the German U-boats with a shooting gallery of sorts, not to mention the destruction that would rain down on British assets by German coastal guns and the Luftwaffe being in such proximity to the enemy. But as can best be guessed, Admiral Dudley Pound, first sea lord, did not share Churchill's enthusiasm for such an adventure. He did not openly challenge Churchill on this potentially suicidal offensive. However, he did stall on gathering the appropriate ships, so much so that by the time spring came, the necessary parts were not in place to move forward which brought London back to the idea of a blockade. But whenever Britain attempted this, the time of the year had to be taken into consideration. During the summer, the Swedish iron ore left the port of Lulea in northeastern Sweden, sailed down the Gulf of Bothnia, made its way to the western side of Denmark, traveling through that water called the Skargerak. During the winter, or rather, from December to April, with the Gulf of Bothnia frozen, the iron ore would instead travel west by rail across northern Norway and depart from the Norwegian port of Narvik. That port was certainly more northern than the Swedish one, but the Gulf Stream kept those waters from turning into ice. But once the ore shipments left Narvik 
They stayed close to the coast, within Norway's inner leads, and thus within Norwegian waters, untouchable by British warships. Churchill's easy answer for that was to mine those waters. This would force the ships out into international waters, where they could be taken over by the British Royal Navy. But the War Cabinet was not willing to go that far yet. This went against the very spirit of Operation Catherine. The Scandinavian countries would be unlikely to join any association that violated its neutrality. Of course, affecting the British thinking of Norway's future was Stalin's invasion of Finland the previous November. The Soviet leader, never really trusting Hitler's non-aggression pact, asked Finland to cede some of its territory near Leningrad to increase its defensive capabilities. When Helsinki replied in the negative, not trusting Stalin any more than he trusted Hitler, the Soviet Union responded with an overwhelming attack of its own. However, with Stalin's paranoid purges of his officer corps, the Russians did not have the leadership in the field, despite their overwhelming armaments, to crush the resistors. Soon the Russian advance slowed to a halt, the attackers suffering many more casualties than the Finns. But then came one of those surreal twists that only war can bring. As Churchill wanted Catherine to move forward, and the French, cognizant that war could be at their doorstep in a very real way soon enough, both sides agreed to fight a country they were not at war with, Russia, instead of focusing on their clear-cut enemy, Germany. So Operation Catherine would go forward in a modified form. The northern Norwegian port of Narvik and her southern sister ports of Stravanger, Bergen, and Trondheim would be occupied to cut off any iron ore from getting to Germany, but also those port cities would be used as way stations to send troops to help the Finns against the Soviets. Oh, and the Swedish port of Lulea would be occupied as well, on their way to helping Finland. So the two neutral countries would be invaded so that a third, Soviet Russia, could be attacked. Of course, all this assumed the Norwegians and Swedes would be okay with this, at the very least not fighting back to any significant degree. One last note, which, like the reaction of the countries invaded, was the reaction of Hitler. Was he to just let the vital iron ore be taken from his war industry? And once Norway and Sweden had Allied troops on it, did that open it up for German troops to land? And what about the nearly defenseless country in between these main players, Denmark? Yet Operation Catherine came to nothing, as Stalin, being humiliated, amassed his troops and sent them swarming into Finland. By mid-March, a peace treaty was signed by both countries, the aggressor and their victim. But Churchill wasn't done with the idea of strangling the war industry of Germany. The first sea lord fell back on the idea of mining the approaches to Narvik and to Stadlandet in the south. This the British cabinet agreed to on March 28th. But having been ineffectual in helping Finland, the cabinet went one step further. Besides Operation Wilford, the aforesaid mining of northern and southern Norway, 
there would also be the outright occupation of Narvik and other major ports, if the Germans tried to invade Norway, in response to the mining of the Norwegian waters. This operation was entitled R4. In short, if Germany tried to annex parts of Norway, Britain would do it first, in order to stop Germany from doing it. The race for Norway was now in motion, each side readying to invade, just in case the other side had similar thoughts. Of course, the British were concerned with the look of the thing, from a legal point of view, so it was decided that Plan R4 would begin, but not be executed right away. The invasion troops were loaded onto four cruisers and two passenger liners, and stationed at Rosyth, but there they would stay unless the British should discover the Germans moving toward Norway. To make the Germans' attempt more challenging, and to buy themselves time to launch their invasion, mines were to be laid. Operation Wilfred would start on April 5th. But because of several administrative reasons, the mining only started some two days later. By the time it was done, on the morning of April 8th, the Germans had already slipped in. It was Admiral Reeder who first brought the question of Norway, the Swedish iron ore, and Britain's intentions on both to Hitler's attention. There were many in the German Navy that considered during the Great War it had been a mistake for Germany not to take Norway. Had they done so, the British Navy might not have been able to contain the German Navy. This combined with the intelligence given to Hitler back in early October of '39 saying that the British intended to occupy Norway, put the unfortunate country front and center of not only Hitler, but Churchill as well. It was the German Navy that did not want to see a repeat of the Allied move of mining the waters from Norway to the Orkneys, an idea brought forth by the then U.S. Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin D. Roosevelt, thus cutting off the Germans from the Atlantic. What's more, the British might perhaps be even more aggressive this time and occupy southern Norway, which would cut off the German Navy from even the North Sea. Something had to give. But as of late 1939, Hitler did not want to go through the headache of invading Norway. Still, it was only prudent to have his staff work on plans for invading the northern country, should it come to that. However, merely two months later, much had changed, and Raider went back to Hitler. Having met with one Vidkun Quisling, an ex-Norwegian army officer, and now the chief of the National Party, a knockoff of Germany's Nazi Party, Quisling had convinced Raider that with help from Germany, it would be easy enough to stage a coup in Oslo. Then, as the legitimate leader of the country, Quisling could ask Germany for help, and insist that the British respect Norwegian waters. Quisling then met with Hitler, who was also impressed. So de Fier ordered two plans to be put together. The first was mostly political. Quisling and his fifth columnists would seize control and call on Germany. The second was mostly military, a straightforward invasion of the country. The latter was dubbed Exercise Wesser. 
However, the incident with the raided Altmark showed Hitler that not only were German ships in Norwegian waters not any safer than in international waters, but that the Norwegians themselves, under their current government, would do nothing to stop the British. Hitler thus set it down that the country was to be invaded and ordered the detailed planning to commence on March 1, 1940. With this so decided, in the grand scheme of things, it was also decided to occupy Denmark as well. The Danes had little in the way of an army, so incorporating its occupation was not expected to bring about any surprises. The man placed in charge was General Nicholas von Falkenhorst. As for which troops he would use, Hitler placed before him the six divisions earmarked for the upcoming invasion of France. As such, speed and daring were the orders of the day. Simply, the Germans had to get there first, before the British, but also had to be ready to repel not only the British Navy, but any French forces that might be launched at the Fatherland. Obviously, the German troops' greatest exposure to danger was when they would be crossing over to Norway in their various ships. As such, to increase the chances that enough of them reached their destination, six groups of vessels would be employed. Per Hitler's orders, Exercise Vesser called for the ships to depart during darkness so the troops could begin their assault at 5.15 a.m. local time on April 9th. The battlecruisers Schornhurst and Gneisenau would escort ten destroyers that would deposit 2,000 Alpine troops at Narvik, to the north. But to confuse the watchful British, the two larger ships would then sail north, hopefully taking Churchill's attention with them. Meanwhile, the heavy cruiser Admiral Hipper, escorting four destroyers, carrying 1,700 men, would make for Trondheim, just below the center section of the coastline. The light cruisers Kolm and Konigsberg, along with the gunnery training ship Brimsa would take 1,900 men to Bergen in the south. Landing elsewhere, the light cruiser Karlsruhe would take 1,100 troops to Christiansand and Arendelle to the far south. As for the capital, Oslo, that was to be overrun by 2,000 troops, taken over by the heavy cruiser Blücher, the pocket battleship Lutzo, and three torpedo boats. Additional forces would be sent to silence communication centers, as well as land in parts of Denmark. Their job was to speed up the downfall of that country, as more German troops crossed directly into the country from Germany. Hitler told Goering that the Luftwaffe was to provide an umbrella over the various naval groups. They would also protect paratroopers who were to be dropped over the capital and at the airport at Stravanger. As this operation would be using the majority of the German surface fleet, Hitler and Raider wanted it protected as much as possible. So 28 U-boats were recalled from the Atlantic and ordered to make a line, from Narvik to the Shetlands above Scotland. As the German Navy was vastly outnumbered, hence exercise Vesser should not theoretically work at all, the subs were Germany's best bet to inflict considerable damage should the invasion be deflected by the British vessels.
Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Dell Tech. As for the troops covered earlier, they were only the initial forces to be sent over, to attack and to hold certain positions, mostly the capital and the major port cities. Coming up behind them was the bulk of the invasion force, some 18,000 troops. They were coming over on 15 steamships labeled Trojan Horses. As speed was demanded of this operation, so too was throwing caution to the wind. The bulk of the German army would depart before the warships, but singularly, as to hopefully not attract attention. The Germans were either going to have the element of surprise, and if they did, Raider told Hitler all would go well, or they would not, and thousands of men would be sent to the bottom of the North Sea. The tanker and supply ships set out, on April 3rd. The British mining of the Norwegian coastline was to begin on April 5th, but as we have seen, it would be delayed until April 8th. Right away, intelligence reports were sent to London of the increased sea activity to the north of Germany. True, the ships spotted hoisted neutral flags, but it was still worrisome. Early on April 7th, Admiral Sir Charles Forbes commander-in-chief of the home fleet, was told it was best to ignore these reports. They all could probably be attributed to war nerves. But by that evening, Forbes decided to ignore the institutional thinking of the Admiralty that Germany wouldn't try anything in the face of superior British might in the North Sea, and took the battleships Rodney, Valiant, and the battlecruiser Repulse to sea. But instead of heading towards Norway, Forbes went to the northeast. His thinking was that the Schornhurst and Gneisenau were making for the Atlantic. Raiders' ruse had worked. For this honest and understandable mistake, Admiral Sir Charles Forbes would be labeled wrong way Forbes afterward. On April 7th, Vice Admiral Gunther Luchens using the Gneisenau as his flagship, led the Schornhurst, Hipper, and several destroyers towards Narvik and Trondheim. The troops they carried were from the Tyrol and Styria mountain regions. Being board a ship was something of a novelty for the men. But that changed when the waters grew rough, the waves becoming the size of small mountains. Their inexperience led to ten of them falling overboard. But the greatest surprise came the next morning, April 8th, when two of the German destroyers spotted, and were spotted by, the British destroyer Glowworm, commanded by Lieutenant Commander Roop. Roop's vessel had been a part of Renown's escort, as mines were to be laid, but the Glowworm lost one of its own men overboard and went searching. Amazingly, the lost man was found amidst the storm but now the glowworm had become separated from the group. 
as radar had not yet been placed on British destroyers, and radio silence had to be maintained. Lieutenant Commander Roop could only grope around in the squall around him. Though the glowworm was outnumbered and outgunned, the German vessels were larger and had larger guns, Roop let loose a salvo upon spotting the enemy, the first shot of this unexpected battle for Norway. Not unexpectedly, this battle was mostly of misses, as the winds and high waves went unabated. Then the cruiser Admiral Hipper arrived. Roop stopped directing fire immediately and got on the radio to announce the presence of a large German naval force. Then Hipper's eight-inch shells started coming at the glowworm. Roop broke off, fired a few torpedoes for distraction, and then laid smoke. As Hipper easily outmatched the glowworm, the cruiser charged directly into the smoke, unafraid. But that was when she saw the British vessel coming right at her, at 38 knots. Roop's badly damaged vessel, some of Hipper's shells had landed true, made contact with the German vessel on her starboard bow. As the British ship scraped down its side, the Hipper lost 130 feet of armored belt. When the ship separated, the glowworm staggered away and then exploded. The Hipper, despite the situation and her own damage, searched for any survivors. They found 38 British seamen. It would have been 39. Lieutenant Commander Roop was being hoisted up when his strength gave out. He fell back into the sea, lost forever. Roop would be awarded the Victoria Cross, the first seaman to so be awarded during World War II. As for the Hipper, her internals were unharmed, so she continued on her way to Trotheim. However, because of the now-lost Roop, the British Admiralty knew the Germans were making for Norway. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 183, Stalin, Lenin's Mouthpiece. Last time, the Bolsheviks, through political chicanery, claimed the power of the state. Of course, many of the citizens of Russia ignored them, but the Central Executive Committee, with Lenin at its head, sought to take over the various branches of the national government. While the commissars were busy attempting to be taken seriously, and, as we have seen, having some trouble with that, Lenin had already moved on to the next phase of his larger goal, the establishment of the Bolshevik dictatorship. As many obstacles as Lenin had in front of him, there should have been more. In fact, an insurmountable amount. But the right-wing officer corps of the army was weaker than it had ever been before and there was no right-wing peasant groups to oppose him. They were all to the left of center, but only because of the land issue. No other reason was needed. The other socialist groups left a lot to be desired in regards to their organization, as well as that key ingredient, a front man, 
a single person the masses could focus their attention on. Yet Lenin did have some within his own larger Bolshevik party oppose him in his attempt to create the dictatorship. As for the dictatorship, it did not rise from the will of the people, as had the February Revolution, but was rather a work of implementation, purposeful implementation, by Lenin himself. To be sure, Lenin had going for him the fact that the Bolsheviks had parties in most of the other cities throughout the country, and most of them were now at the top of their political ladders. But that in itself did not guarantee his success. To further hamstring the Bolshevik government, and this must never be forgotten, as Lenin's party reached out further to secure itself, they were not bringing organized nor effective government with them. Their increase in momentum directly led to more chaos, less getting done for the people, which was okay with Lenin, desired, in fact. He could point to that very chaos and offer it up as an excuse for his extremism. The question remains, how did Lenin's party survive the same issues that brought down the Tsar and the provisional government? Food supply problems still existed, were in fact getting worse. The streets were thick with armed men. Yes, many of them worked for the Bolsheviks, but that's not a government. The answer seems to be that though Lenin's commissars may have been issuing decrees that went largely ignored, they were causing enough chaos so that no one else could even attempt to govern effectively. Bolshevism wasn't a government at all in this time period. It was an idea, a movement, a vision, an attempt to have perfection on earth. So while its minions were making a hash of things, their very attempts were, at the very least, tolerated by many of the people. And of course, there was Lenin, with Stalin by his side. Neither one was ever willing to give up on their ideas or their own self-interests. Their current struggle was certainly preferable to jail or death by firing squad. As Lenin was drawing on the writings of Karl Marx, Marx had been influenced by the Paris Commune, a political entity that rose after the fall of Napoleon III and ruled Paris, but only for 72 days. Taking advantage of the French government's fall, the Commune organized elections, when they should have been organizing an army or taking hold of the National Bank. As it was, they did neither of these things, wherein the French army later defeated the Dreamers. Lenin was determined that the revolution and his seizure of power would not end so prematurely, and the only way he could win over his numerous enemies, the Russian army, whatever state it was in, the political right, those on the left, not Bolsheviks, as well as many within his own party, was to have the people in their millions on his side. In April of 1918, Lenin wrote for the masses, All citizens must take part in the work of the courts and in the government of the country. It is important for us to draw literally all working people into the government of the state. It is a task of tremendous difficulty. But socialism cannot be implemented by a minority, by a party. In truth, Lenin was right to feel constantly threatened. And during his very seizing of power, another enemy had been added to the list. Even before the Second Congress of the Soviets was over, 
Alexander Kerensky had escaped to the front, borrowing two cars parked in front of the U.S. Embassy, and one has to consider the convenience of that. Kerensky knew that only force would stop Lenin's Bolsheviks, yet he was only able to gather a few hundred Cossack troops from the 3rd Cavalry Corps. Still, they would have to do. Bringing them back to Petrograd, Kerensky's soldiers met the Red Guards and garrison soldiers of the Petrograd Military Revolutionary Committee. In the ensuing clash, just over 200 men were killed or wounded. The cavalrymen were brave and intimidating on their horses, but were unable to push back the thousands of foot soldiers facing them. As for Kerensky himself, he got away and went into exile. Hard upon the heels of this exchange, other socialists, opposed to the Bolshevik rule, gathered military cadets, and one has to wonder why, except that maybe they were too naive to say, go jump off a bridge, old man, and launched a surprise assault, seizing the Hotel Astoria, where many Bolsheviks were lodging, along with the state bank and the telephone exchange. However, these young pawns were shooed away by the Red Guard. So Lenin's men had won against Kerensky and the anti-Bolsheviks, but their paranoia remained, with good reason. Furthermore, not all challenges to their power were physical. Lev Kamenev, one of the Bolshevik Central Committee members, had become the new chairman of the Soviet Central Executive Committee of the Congress of Soviets, in whose name power had been seized. It will be remembered that the Bolsheviks voted themselves power only because almost every other delegate representing these factions had left the Congress. But Kamenev, like many Bolsheviks, was convinced that the all-Bolshevik control would not last unless they allowed in other left-leaning socialists. To that end, Kamenev continued to negotiate for a coalition. But then came in late October, as covered last time, the threat of the railway workers' strike that did not trust, or want, Trotsky nor Lenin within the new government. While the railroad workers waited for a response, the Kerensky almost return played out. But on October 29th, Lenin and Trotsky managed to convince 23 of the 51 representatives of the garrison troops throughout Petrograd to support their counter-revolution. A bullet had been dodged, but still Kamenev went along with Zinoviev and other leaning Bolsheviks on the idea that the socialist revolutionaries and Mensheviks ought to be brought into the Council of People's Commissars, which meant the crisis for Lenin was not over. Then Kamenev took the initiative again. He proposed to all concerned that Lenin be allowed to remain within the government but that he give up his chairmanship, probably to the socialist revolutionary leader Viktor Chernov. The other Bolsheviks would only have minor roles. Stalin stepped in and attempted to give Lenin time to maneuver when he issued the statement that agreement among all factions across the socialist left have always been the final goal, adding that the Bolsheviks have always understood revolutionary democracy to mean a coalition of all socialist parties, not the domination of a single party. It was pure fluff, but it calmed the people down 
and the railway workers to a lesser degree. Trotsky solidly stood by Lenin's unwillingness to negotiate, which brought much praise on Trotsky's head from the leader. This did not help the relationship between Trotsky and Stalin. Taking his cue from Trotsky, Lenin said to the Central Committee, If there is to be a split, let it be so. If you have a majority, take power, and we shall go to the sailors. As in, the Red Guards weren't the only ones with guns. On November 1st, when the Bolshevik Central Committee met again, and though the Bolshevik party in Petrograd ruled, their counterparts had not quite taken power in Moscow, Lenin raised his voice to Kamenev for proposing and actually starting negotiations with other parties, as opposed to telling everyone there would be negotiations, but then calling in their military to force all the others to acquiesce. Furthermore, Lenin wanted to appeal their next move to the people directly, to show those that mattered who the people supported. As for completely stopping Kamenev's talks, Zverdlov countered that the break would be too abrupt, better to go through the motions, but really give away nothing. But still, showing his support for Lenin, Zverdlov then recommended arresting several of the railway union leaders. This was in response to Kamenev's fighting back, saying the railway workers would go on strike if the Bolshevik minority continued to press the idea that they, and they alone, were in power. Nothing was decided at the meeting, and Stalin did not attend. But when they met again later that evening, Stalin was there, keeping an eye on things for Lenin. The next day, Lenin's faction received joyous news. Their comrades in Moscow had seized the Kremlin in the name of Soviet power. The most intense part of the fighting had taken place during the last week, and the Bolsheviks had lost some 228 men. The number of lost government defenders was never tallied. Despite this victory, during the follow-up meeting on November 2nd, Kemenev and Zinoviev maneuvered to get the Soviet's Central Executive Committee to go forward with negotiations with other socialists. But then, with Kerensky forced away, and now that the ancient capital Moscow was in Bolshevik hands, Lenin felt strong enough to make an immoral move. Meeting one-on-one, and few could stand up to Lenin's personality, with most of the members of the executive committee, he had subdued them long enough to get them to sign a document, which called for any action that would take power away from the Bolsheviks to be seen as treason. This was all too much for Kamenev, who, like most, could not stand up to the force of nature that was Lenin. Instead of challenging the insurrectionists and saying, go to the sailors who have guns, but we have more and are willing to fight it out in the streets, all the while gathering others who are against you, Kamenev resigned from the Bolshevik Central Committee. He was followed by Zinoviev and three more. But as luck is the residue of hard work, in Lenin's case, emotionally overwhelming his opponents, these vacancies were not the only opened positions of influence. Not liking Lenin's tactics, Alexei Rakhkov, the Interior Affairs Commissar, resigned his position, and he was followed by a few more that, again, did not like Lenin's extremism. 
So within a single day, Lenin had positions filled on the Bolshevik Central Committee and of the commissars that were more than willing to follow him blindly. Yet Lenin, like a shark sensing blood, continued on with his attack, and his goal was simple, for the Bolshevik government to be the only legitimate power in Russia. As for Kemenev, he did have a fallback position, as he was still the chairman of the Petrograd Soviet Central Executive Committee. And Lenin, in a moment of compromise during the Second Congress of Soviets, had made the Council of People's Commissars, that Lenin now controlled, submissive to the Petrograd Soviet. This clearly had to change, now that Lenin could use the commissars as he wished. Going to the committee, Lenin bluntly told them that it did not have power over the Council of People's Commissars, completely ignoring what he had written and signed previously. The Soviet Central Executive Committee, rather naively, decided to vote on the matter, something that should not have been up for question in the first place. But right before the vote was taken, Lenin insisted that he, Stalin, Trotsky, and one last commissar be allowed to vote. Again, this should not have even been considered, but it was. And when the four of them voted, with a few moderate Bolsheviks abstaining, Lenin's motion passed, 29 to 23. From now on, the Bolshevik government was answerable to no one. But Lenin wasn't done just yet. With Kamenev out as the Soviet Central Executive Committee chairman, Lenin maneuvered to have Zverdlov replace him. Oh, Kamenev, Zinoviev, and Rykov would plead to come back under Lenin's sway in the future, and Lenin would acquiesce to this, but he would do so grudgingly, making sure these men had learned their place. Zverdlov was now the secretary of the Bolshevik Party and the chairman of the Soviet Central Executive Committee, and he would use the latter position to align it with the Bolshevik Party. And now that Lenin had his man in charge, it was of little moment to break up the socialists aligned against him. By having the left-leaning socialist revolutionaries agree to serve in a few commissar positions, but still only in a minor role. Now, Lenin could say, or lie rather, that he was leading a coalition government. This would be loudly touted by Stalin's newspapers. With the socialist revolutionaries on his side, the united front against Lenin, centered on the railway workers, fell apart. Moreover, as the socialist revolutionaries focused mainly on agrarian reforms, Lenin could now espouse that his government not only sought to help the luckless within the cities, but also wanted to give land to those of more rural settings. It made for great propaganda. With this immediate threat silenced, Lenin then went to war against the newspapers of the right, of the bourgeoisie, and those of the left that did not agree with him. Soon enough, his voice was the loudest of the land, mostly from a lack of competition. However, Lenin did promise to relax his attacks when things were more normal. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. 
and you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But as far as Russia, the country was concerned, its very geography was affected by the last year of political maneuverings. Between November 1917 and the first month of 1918, several border areas broke away. Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Ukraine, Georgia, and others. They declared themselves national republics. Only now did Stalin's portfolio as Nationalities Commissar come to the fore. Yet all he could manage was to formally negotiate the various republics' withdrawal. However, one sticking point to have future ramifications was the departure of Finland. Stalin worked with that country's representative on the issue of its border near Petrograd. But try as he might, Stalin could not get Finland to move their line further to the north to increase the defensive area of the capital. Stalin would remember this rebuff. Back to the day-to-day running of this reduced Russia, Lenin let his commissars know that money was needed desperately to grease the wheels of administration. Vyacheslav Mezhinsky, one of Lenin's revolutionaries, took the shortest route possible to relieve this problem by robbing the state bank. Before the day was out, some five million rubles were atop Lenin's desk. Other Bolshevik officials followed suit. This led many citizens to attempt to withdraw their holdings from the banks, but few were allowed to. In fact, most items were already gone. By December 1917, stock dividends were no longer being paid. Lenin, as the new leader, reneged on just over 100 million rubles worth of debt, domestic and foreign. In reaction to this, the ruble was taken out of European markets. Russia was no longer allowed to access international financing. The entire financial system of the country came to a stop. As for the peasants, who had little dealing with their country's financial system, they continued to grab land from the gentry and to form communes, as solidarity increased their chances of simple survival. The food situation was no better than the economic or land and the Bolsheviks did not have a police force. Lawlessness dominated the landscape. A new commissar had to be appointed just to deal with the vast amount of stolen alcohol. In reaction to this breakdown of everyday society, the commissars, on December 7th, established the temporary All-Russia Extraordinary Commission for Combating Counter-Revolution and Sabotage. Its acronym was Cheka. But what Cheka really did was go after those who worked for various ministries, but refused to show up for work. As well as the telephone workers, school teachers, even pharmacists. The fact that they were all probably too afraid to go to work was not factored in. The Cheka fanned out looking for nonconformists, labeled a counter-revolutionary. They were thrown in jail, all their worldly goods were confiscated. Soon, all non-Bolsheviks had another reason to hate the party, now trying to establish control. It didn't help that criminals had joined the Cheka, as they had no problem getting their hands dirty or 
on other people's possessions. Soon, warehouses were full of what was considered state property. Those that fled out of fear were considered guilty as well, of something, and their goods were seized. Lenin fought the backlash with the saying, We loot the looters. But the majority of what was taken did not come from the well-off. It came from the commoners. As such, with everyday life even now more destabilized, the people, used to the hard knocks of life, decided to fight back. The Smolny was bombed several times. Even Lenin's car was shot up. Fortunately, he was elsewhere. Though the Lenin-led Bolsheviks would never admit it, they had bitten off more than they can chew. They were attacking the very people that Lenin declared was the Bolsheviks' trump card. If they had the people on their side, the new government could overcome all opposition. But now they were losing their base through terror and common theft. Thanks to Blue Apron for sponsoring this week's episode. Don't forget to use the code WORLDWAR to get your first three meals free. Take care, everyone. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the... The weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.